Here, in a London churchyard, is a square stone monument. Covered with moss, the name on the gravestone faded with time. It's the tomb of the author of the defining manifesto on women's rights. In 1814, this writer's 16-year-old daughter visited her mother's graveside, accompanied by her married lover. Where they consummated a tryst. And started a romantic journey that would bring us the world's best-known horror story. My name is Mark Zakian, and I'm with Laura Adams, fellow Blue Badge Guide and creator of the Women Inspire podcast. And we are investigating women writers. Authors whose works changed literature. Including a woman who spent 30 years in one room and is recognised as the mother of English prose. We'll meet the first English autobiographer. And two women who can both claim to have written the first ever science fiction novel. An enslaved woman who was sold four times and a journalist who went to extraordinary lengths to report from the World War I trenches. Hear their stories in this podcast. In 1373, a young woman lay dying on her bed. A priest was called to give her the last rites. As he raised the crucifix above her, she drifted into a world of mystical revelations and fevered visions. She recalled, In this sodden lay I saw the red blood trickle down from under the garland, hot, freshly and plenteously. This encounter with the bleeding, crucified Christ was one of 16 revelations that came to her. Miraculously, she recovered from her brush with mortality and decided to follow a new path. To become an anchorite. A religious hermit. Turning her back on the secular world, enclosing herself here in a cell attached to a church in Norwich. Taking vows of charity and poverty, she spent the rest of her life in this room. From a cell window looking out onto the street, she would speak to people, offering them spiritual counsel. There was an opening where food was brought in and waste taken out. From another window, a view into the church. The anchorite's name was Julian of Norwich. We know her story because she recorded it all in... Revelations of Divine Love, the first book in English written by a woman. Written at a time when women had no education and were married at 15. And only one woman in 20 could read, and even fewer knew how to write. And Julian described herself as an unlettered creature. She probably taught herself to read and write, saying, Just because I am a woman, why must I not write of the goodness of God? Revelations of Divine Love speaks of the motherhood of God. She wrote, I see. No hell. Our Lord is never angry. Theology at odds with a church run by bishops and priests who put the fear of hell and damnation into their congregations. People were burned alive if they spoke out like Julian. 
Julian died in 1416. She is probably buried here, under St Julian's Church in Norwich. After her death, the book and its philosophy of a loving, matriarchal God disappeared. And went underground, kept secret, passed from hand to hand. During the Reformation, with Protestants denouncing mystics, it might have disappeared forever. If it were not for Catholic nuns who kept it alive. A secret text known only to the sisters. In 1901, Scotswoman and scholar Grace Warwick visited the British Library. She searched through the enormous Hans Sloan book collection. Eventually finding what she was looking for, filed under magic and witchcraft, was a 17th century copy of Julian's manuscript. 600 years after it was first published, Revelations of divine love could once again be read in its complete version. And is now hailed as the first great masterpiece of English prose. Julian of Norwich is a voice for a compassionate God. Her book includes the famous line, All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. In 1934, an old manuscript tumbled from a games cupboard in a grand Derbyshire home. The family patriarch, Lieutenant Colonel William Butler Bowden, wanted rid of the dusty tome. I'm going to put the whole effing lot on the bonfire tomorrow so we may be able to find ping-pong balls and bats when we want them. Thank goodness the book survived the Colonel's reckless impatience, as it is the only existing copy of the Book of Marjorie Kemp. The first ever autobiography written in English. Marjorie Kemp lived in the East Anglian town of Lynn during the early 1400s. She ran a horse mill, brewed beer and was mother to 14 children. Married at 20, her first child quickly followed. But the birth was painful and difficult, and soon afterwards she... Went out of her mind! What today might be recognised as postnatal depression. At the same time, her businesses failed. And in her despair came a vision of Jesus. Who appeared at the end of her bed, offering her words of comfort. From this moment, she devoted herself to a religious life. Setting out on a series of extraordinary religious pilgrimages. Walking for thousands of miles, visiting the Holy Land, Rome, Santiago de Compostela in Spain. But Marjorie was not your typical pious, pliant pilgrim. She stood out in bright, white robes and wept high volumes during her devotions. On a visit to the shrine of St. Stephen in Norwich. She cried, she roared, she wept. She fell down to the ground so fervently the fire of love burnt in her heart. Fellow pilgrims thought she was weeping because she committed a sin, asking, what aileth ye, woman? Marjorie faced scorn and mistrust. 
and was arrested several times, accused of heresy and threatened with being burnt alive in the street. And at home, she clashed with her husband as he resisted her constant requests for a celibate marriage. The challenges began to weigh on Marjorie, who began doubting the truth of her visions. In 1413, in search of support, she visited Julian of Norwich. Whose fame as an anchorite had spread through England. They spent many days together. Julian encouraged Marjorie to continue on her spiritual path, and the pair bonded. In the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Talking in faithful sisterhood brought the two writers closer to God. Kemp sought out an amanuensis to document her life story, a sort of medieval ghostwriter. Marjorie's account is open, honest, unvarnished and unashamed. That it is the first autobiography in English makes it important, but the fact that it was composed by an illiterate woman makes it extraordinary. It records... Here feelings and revelations and the form of her living. Giving us a unique window onto the life of an ordinary, middle-class woman in a prosperous town in medieval England. In 1666, a novel appeared that was centuries ahead of its time. Blazing World is the story of a hero who travels through a portal into an extraordinary universe. To become the leader of a world inhabited by talking animals. Fish and birdmen. Rainbow-coloured people with an advanced technology. Air-powered ships which fuse together into a golden honeycomb that not wind nor waves were able to separate. This is science fiction 150 years before the first sci-fi novel, Frankenstein. And like Mary Shelley's story, Blazing World was written by a woman. Margaret Cavendish was born in Colchester in 1623 to a wealthy family. Her education typical for a woman of her status, reading, writing, music and needlework. Age 19, she became a maid of honour to Queen Henrietta Maria, wife of Charles I. During the Civil War, Margaret's royalist soldier brother was executed and she escaped with the Queen to Paris. Where she met and married the defeated cavalier, the Duke of Newcastle, regarded by the parliamentarians as the greatest traitor to the state. Returning to England, she spent frenzied days writing her first book, poems and fancies. The book was a sensation, provoking admiration and derision for its style and spelling. Margaret refused to apologise, saying that it was against nature for a woman to spell right and that she was unable to understand grammar and the little I know is enough to make me renounce it. She did, however, apologise for my audacity in writing it at all, being a woman knowing full well she would be the target of male criticism. Diarist Samuel Pepys, never the most socially advanced in his attitudes to women, called her mad, conceited and ridiculous. Margaret wore original costumes, 
including a matching outfit of riding breeches with a philosopher's cap, and she once attended the theatre in a topless gown with her nipples painted red. Margaret had a flirtatious and exuberant manner and packed her speech with oaths and obscenity. Characteristics that have made icons of many modern celebrities, from Madonna to Lady Gaga. So what is the literary legacy of Mad Madge, as she was nicknamed? She wrote prolifically. Discussing issues of marriage, courtship and infidelity. Investigating the imbalance between the sexes and the lack of opportunity for women making her arguably an early feminist. Margaret wrote essays on politics, religion and science. And in 1667, she became the first woman to attend a meeting at the Royal Society, a bold step which was not repeated for centuries. She was intrigued by ideas such as the smallness of an atom and imagined how there might be other worlds within this world, a world in an earring worn by some lady quite unconscious of her responsibility. She was the most published woman of the 17th century, authoring 22 books. With many still in print today. Margaret, Duchess of Newcastle, died in 1673, aged 50. Her own words are her best, if rather fatalistic, obituary. Women live like bats or owls, labour like beasts, and die like worms. This is slavery. I tell it to let the English people know the truth, and I hope they will never leave off to pray God and call loud to the great King of England till all the poor blacks be given free and slavery be done for evermore. These are the words of Mary Prince. Mary was born in 1788 in Bermuda, the daughter of slaves. Her mother was a house servant to Charles Miners. Miners sold baby Mary along with her mother and siblings to Captain Darrell. The Darrells treated Mary well, but ran short of money. So they sent Mary's family to the local slave market. Mary never forgot being brought out for inspection by the auctioneer. A terrifying experience for a 12-year-old girl. He took me by the hand and led me out into the middle of the street and turning me slowly round, exposed me to view. I was surrounded by strange men who examined and handled me in the same manner that a butcher would a calf he was about to purchase and who talked about my shape and size in words as if I could no more understand their meaning than dumb beasts. Her new owners paid £38 for Mary, the equivalent of around £5,000 in today's money. Mary's two sisters were sold to different owners and the family torn apart. Her new enslaver regularly flogged her for minor offences. On one occasion, when a cow got loose, my master knew that this accident was his own fault, but he was so enraged that he seemed glad of an excuse to go on with his ill usage. I cannot remember how many licks he gave me then, but he beat me till I was unable to stand, until he himself was weary. Mary was sold again, 
this time to an enslaver who set her to work on salt ponds, standing in water for up to 17 hours at a time. And she was then sold again for a fourth time to John Adams Wood, who kept her as a domestic slave. Her rheumatism made it really hard for her to work. She joined the Moravian Church, where she attended classes and learnt to read. And married Carpenter Daniel, a former slave who had saved to buy his freedom. Mary's floggings increased after her marriage because Enslaver Wood did not want a freed black man living on his property. In 1828, Mary travelled with the Wood family to London. Slavery was illegal in Britain, but Mary could not leave the household without a job to support herself. And unless Wood emancipated her, she could not return to her husband without being re-enslaved. After many arguments, Wood gave her a letter saying she could leave, but insinuating that nobody should hire her. So Mary took shelter with the Moravian Church in Hatton Garden. And started working for Thomas Pringle, a writer and member of the Anti-Slavery Society that offered assistance to black people in need. Pringle offered money to Wood to emancipate Mary. Wood refused. So Pringle arranged for Mary's life story to be recorded in a book. The History of Mary Prince was published in 1831. The first British autobiography of a black woman's life. Her first-person account touched many people, selling out three printings. In 1833, Parliament passed the Slavery Abolition Act. Mary was a free woman. It's not clear if she returned to the West Indies to rejoin her husband. Because her life after the book was published is not recorded. She became invisible, like the lives of millions of enslaved people. We don't even have a sketch or painting to know what she looked like. In 2007, a commemorative plaque was unveiled in Bloomsbury, the last known place Mary Prince lived. Her story endures, a testimony to the spirit of resistance and a passion for liberty. It's 1775, nighttime in London's Hoxton. A teenage girl is half asleep on the landing outside her mother's bedroom. It's a regular vigil for Mary as she tries to keep her despotic, violent father from handing out another beating to her mother. Edward Wollstonecraft was an irresponsible bully and drunk who squandered the family fortune on a series of failed farming businesses. Frittering away money that should have paid for his daughter's education, he was forced to hand over the family inheritance to avoid bankruptcy. In her early 20s, Mary moved in with a younger sister Eliza and her husband. Eliza had just given birth to a baby and was suffering from postnatal depression. Witnessing her sister's unhappy and unloving marriage, Mary convinced her to leave her husband and newborn. A radical choice. The damage to Eliza's reputation meant she would not marry again and live the rest of her life impoverished. Mary and Eliza began a new chapter, running a girls' school in Newington Green, North London. The area had established itself as a refuge for dissenters, reformists and radicals a community who had become Mary's friends and supporters. 
When financial problems closed the girls' school, Mary was introduced to publisher Joseph Johnson, who became her mentor and guide. He paid off her creditors and advanced payment on her first book, Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. In the book, Mary Wollstonecroft argued that parents should educate daughters to deal with life problems, rather than rely on a husband. She wrote, In a married state, a woman's sphere of action is not large. How trivial are her occupations and pursuits? How narrow her mind? But it is her second book that secured Wollstonecraft's place in history. A Vindication of the Rights of Woman is the seminal work on female rights. It challenged a terrible imbalance between the sexes at a time when a married woman had no legal access to her property or money, which belonged to her husband. She wrote, I do not wish women to have power over men, but over themselves. It is time to effect a revolution, time to restore their lost dignity and make them part of the human species by reforming the world. The book passionately advocated for women's education. Her manifesto was to strengthen the female mind by enlarging it and there will be an end to blind obedience. Mary was intrigued by the egalitarian ideas of the French Revolution, which she saw as a glorious chance to obtain more virtue and happiness than hitherto blessed our globe. In 1792, despite the pleas of her friends, she travelled to revolutionary Paris. Where she witnessed the former king, Louis XVI, being taken to trial before the National Assembly. And much to her own surprise found... The tears flowing from my eyes when I saw Louis sitting with more dignity than I expected from his character in a coach going to meet death. France declared war on Britain in 1793 and foreigners were forbidden to leave. Some of Wollstonecraft's French friends were sent to the guillotine. Stranded in France, she met and fell in love with Gilbert Imlay. Wollstonecraft put her anti-marriage principles into practice by sleeping with the American adventurer. An unmarried woman having sex was completely unacceptable in respectable society. Pregnant by Imlay, she gave birth to her first child. In 1795, Wollstonecraft returned to London as a single mother. Rejected and abandoned by Imlay, depressed and alone, she attempted suicide. But in the latter period of her life, she found happiness and companionship with radical writer William Godwin. Like Mary, he had renounced marriage. But in March 1797, the couple were wed at St Pancras Church. Five months later, Wollstonecraft gave birth to her second daughter, named Mary like her mother. Although the delivery went well, Mary got an infection. And after several days of agony, she died of septicemia. Six months after Mary was married at St Pancras Church, she was buried in its graveyard. In 1814, two lovers stood on Mary Wollstonecraft's tomb in St Pancras churchyard and declared their passion for each other. According to legend, 
they consummated their love in the graveyard. One of them was Wollstonecraft's 16-year-old daughter, Mary Godwin. The other was the 21-year-old, swaggering, radical Aristopoet, Percy Bysshe Shelley. A married man. Mary grew up a few streets away from the church. Brought up by her father, the philosopher, novelist and journalist William Godwin, and her quick-tempered and quarrelsome stepmother. Mary's bookish but unconventional education was tutored by her father, who wanted her to grow up like a philosopher. When Mary was 15, her father described her as... Singularly bold, somewhat imperious and active of mind. Her desire for knowledge is great and her perseverance in everything she undertakes almost invincible. Mary was attracted to poet Shelley's wild, intellectual, unearthly looks. In 1814, the couple eloped to war-ravaged France. By the time they arrived back in London, Mary was pregnant. Her father refused to have anything to do with her. Penniless, Mary and Shelley took lodgings along with Mary's stepsister Claire. Mary and Shelley espoused the principle of free love. Shelley and Claire Claremont were almost certainly lovers. In February 1815, after giving birth to a two-month premature baby girl, Mary wrote, My dearest baby is dead. It was perfectly well when I went to bed. It was dead in the morning. I am no longer a mother now. The loss of her child induced acute depression. Mary was haunted by visions of the baby, but she conceived again and gave birth to her son. In 1816, Mary, Shelley and their newborn travelled to Geneva with stepsister Claire. They spent the summer with poet Lord Byron, who had an affair with Claire, leaving her pregnant. One day, confined to the summer house by rain, Byron proposed that they each write a ghost story. Mary struggled until one evening the discussions turned to the nature of life. Mary wondered, perhaps a corpse could be reanimated. Galvanism has given token of such things. Possessed by her idea, she turned the grim terrors of her waking dream into a ghost story. Her novel, Frankenstein, was published in 1818. The Shelleys then embarked on a roving existence, mostly in Italy. Mary's life was riddled with heartache. She lost her half-sister Fanny to suicide. And two more children, Clara and William, died. May you never know what it is to lose two only and lovely children in one year to watch their dying moments and then at last to be left childless and forever miserable. Then Percy's wife Harriet was found drowned in the Serpentine Lake in Hyde Park. Mary and Percy Shelley were finally able to wed. She found comfort in her writing and the birth of her fourth child. During one of his regular spells away in 1822, Percy Shelley disappeared at sea in a storm. Ten days after the storm, three bodies were washed up 
One of them was Percy Shelley. Mary returned to England with her surviving son. Living on a modest inheritance from the Shelley family, she practiced her mother's principles by helping women who society disapproved of, single mothers and illegitimate children. This was what she called a simple justice I perform. Mary died at her home in London's Chester Square, age 53. On the anniversary of her passing, the Shelleys opened her box desk. Inside were locks of her dead children's hair, a notebook she had shared with Shelley, and a copy of his poem Adonis, with one page folded round a silk parcel containing the remains of his heart. In 1915, British soldier Private Dennis Smith was walking through France. Sleeping in ditches, forests and haystacks, heading towards the World War I battlefields. Approaching the thunderous enemy fire, a narrow escape from a suspicious French policeman sent Dennis off course. Into the frontline town of Albert. Where Dennis was subject to whistles and crude remarks from British soldiers. Because Dennis was actually Dorothy. Her poor attempt to pass as a man easily spotted by Tommies who hadn't been near a woman in months. Dorothy hid in a muddy dugout in order to escape male attention. A couple of soldiers took pity on her, bringing food and water, even agreeing to take her on night patrols. But she started suffering from fainting fits. To avoid causing problems for her soldier friends, she turned herself in. And was cross-examined by six British generals. She was not a spy. So why had a woman made such a treacherous journey to the heart of battle? Dorothy Lawrence's war story began in 1911. She was in London, scraping a living as a journalist. A regular contributor for the Pall Mall magazine and the Times newspaper. But with no byline and restricted to light entertainment stories and showbiz interviews. When war broke out in 1914, Dorothy spied an opportunity, thinking... I'll see what an ordinary English girl can do as a war correspondent. Knocking on Fleet Street doors, she was turned away by every publication. Except one. Promising more showbiz stories, Dorothy convinced the Times to help her get across the Channel to Paris. Smuggling her bicycle onto a boat, on a midsummer's day, 1915, she set out across France. As a young woman travelling alone, she was greeted with curiosity and amusement by battalions of bored troops waiting to be deployed. Hanging around in coffee shops, trying to get stories, the soldiers assumed she was out for love. So she cropped her hair, forged papers, found a male uniform and made her way to the front line as Dennis. Sent back to London after her failed attempt to be a war reporter, she faced homelessness and unemployment. She was required to sign an agreement forbidding her from telling anyone about her experiences. For someone who made a living by selling stories, this was a disaster. By 1918, Dorothy was living here in Islington 
and had written a book in spite of injunctions against her doing so. And had a publishing deal. The war was over and she could tell her story. The book was released in 1919 to mediocre reviews and was quickly forgotten. Dorothy's state of mind deteriorated. In 1925, she was admitted to Hanwell Mental Asylum. Where she was incarcerated for the rest of her life. She died in 1964, buried in an unmarked grave in North London. The only Englishwoman on the front line during the First World War. This British Guild of Tourist Guides podcast is written by Mark Zakian and co-hosted with Laura Adams from Women Inspire. The music was by Scott Buckley, www.scottbuckley.com.au. For tours and information about Blue Badge Guides, visit britainsbestguides.org.